Are you a writer with a great screenplay just sitting on your desktop? Are you looking for written analysis of your work by experienced creatives? Are you trying to get industry professionals to read your work, but you don't know how to reach them? Then enter the Blue Cat Screenplay Competition. Created by veteran screenwriter Gordon Hoffman, the Blue Cat Screenplay Competition has helped unknown writers launch their professional careers for over 25 years. This year, the Blue Cat Screenwriting Competition will award $18,500 in cash, and everyone who enters will receive written analysis on their work, and getting feedback on your script is worth, like, a lot. The deadline to enter is October 30th, but if you miss it, you could still catch their late deadline on December 11th. Check them out on the social medias at Blue Cat Writers on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So stop waiting to be discovered and send your feature screenplay, TV pilot, and short film script to Blue Cat today. And the deadline to enter is October 30th, but if you miss it, you can still catch their late deadline on December 11th, and you can use our code, all caps, B-C-H-A-R-D-23 for $10 off. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is a podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital and DVD. And if you can't find the DVD link, email me and I'll send it to you. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features. I'm currently in pre-production on my third, which is called Best Friends Forever. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative, and I do sales. This week, we welcome producer, post-supervisor, film accountant, and all-around indie film hero, Mark Stoloroff, on the show to talk about how he likes to work with filmmakers and what it takes to produce an indie feature. After that, we play a round of the game presented by new listener Colin Stryker, who has my favorite name. Thanks, Colin. And we read a brand new iTunes review. But first, Auric, how are you? What's going on in your life? Uh, I'm good. My producer got back from, well, not my producer, but he's the, the EP on this project that I'm attached to. He got back from AFM. He had a good, good AFM experience, although our project was had some frustrating meetings where people wanted, like, like the, the biggest name stars, but then they don't want to pay for them, you know? So they're like, like all the distributors, it's just the same thing. It's like they want the moon and then they're like, ah, and we'll give you this much, you know? It's like, no, that's not going <laughs> to... I don't know what world you live in. That's not going to happen. So, but he had some fruitful meetings with some some distributors, and I think he's got like a kind of a game plan to circle back to them. But like, we didn't walk away from AFM with you know the contingent MG that we were looking for. It could still happen weeks yeah. after the. No, market. yeah, for sure. I think we were all kind of like thinking like, oh, he was going to go work his magic, meet these people in person, and then walk away with the golden ticket. Yeah. But didn't happen. And, but we're still, you know, we had a good meeting yesterday. We like kind of regrouped as a team. We're still thinking about like, you know, the same budget level that we were at before. But there, there is a plan B that we've been put in place where we could drop to a much lower budget and uh, go after, you know, probably more attainable actors, you know, for it. So which, which like was the original plan. So like we are, we, when we first started this process, we were like all this level with like, this level actors and you know a lot of them he'd worked with before and we're like okay we're just gonna look for like one more new person to mix into to to mix into the fold you know and then we started like oh let's think about this person think about this person just got higher and higher and higher and then we found ourselves in this high realm and we're like okay well double the budget roughly than what we thought we were going to go after and let's see how it goes and so i guess he's still optimistic that he he like wants to how he put it he's like i want to see this through i want to like explore all options at this level and then once they all fail then we'll go down to the next level so 
you know, Odyssey continues, you know, no, no, uh, anything concrete, but I mean, I just, I watch what, what you're doing with your film with best friends forever. And I'm like, that's how you make a movie. <laughs> that's how you do it. Like all that's what you, if you really want to make a movie, like that's what you need to do. And our EP doesn't really feel like that. That's like not his world. Like he doesn't feel like, you know, to go grassroots and raise money in that way, or even ask people to put money into a movie that doesn't have any commitments already in place. Like he just, that's not how he operates, which is fine. And I'm happy to be a part of this project. And I think it's going to be, I still think it could happen, you know, but it's like, I just know in my heart of hearts that if I really want to make a movie, I have to do what you're doing and I'm ready to do that, but it's just not with the right, I don't have a script that I'm ready to do that with yet, you know? So Well, it took me a while to figure that out. I, I don't think necessarily there's a right and a wrong path, but, you know, I also had a project at AFM and they announced it at AFM and we got coverage in the trades. And I don't know the results of those meetings, but I assume we don't have anything because someone would have called me or emailed me <laughs> saying we, you know, we landed something. Hey, so and I had a lot of. Well, I want to go. I want to talk about what you're saying, but I also want to go back to AFM. I had a bunch of friends who attended AFM this year, and I think it's looked on as this really almost uh, random, chaotic place where magic can come out of it. <laughs> like, oh, I don't know. We'll just head there and see what AFM could give us. What what will happen right. in this magical realm? And it's funny because I'll talk to distributors about AFM. They'll be like, you go in Liz and I'll be like, I don't think so. And they will just complain. They'll just be like, it's seedy. We have creepy filmmakers approaching us at every angle. No one has a <laughs> sense of like, I guess there's no decorum is what I'm saying. Like they, right. they feel they're surrounded by sleaze. I think the filmmakers feel like they're surrounded by sleaze. Like it just feels like a yucky place unless you have partners who traffic in the level where it's a genre film and it's contingent on these marketplaces for sales. Like right. you and I both have those projects, but I just think for a lot of people, they go to AFM and they see it as a, not what it is. Like I'll say this story really quickly. A distributor was where I was talking to a distributor the other, the other day and he was saying he was walking in the lobby of the Lowe's. A filmmaker, filmmaker came up to him with an iPad and this was years ago when he worked in international sales. And he said to the filmmaker, hey, I don't. I, hi, nice to meet you. You know, I don't need to look at what's on that iPad. We're not acquiring anything right now. And we're not funding anything. And the filmmaker cornered him and said, I need you to watch this. And I'm not leaving until you do. And bullied him. <laughs> oh, my God. And I would say Terrible. horrible. And then the corollary story is that this same guy who worked at an international sales company was sitting behind the desk in his kiosk at the low, you know, at the Lowe's at AFM. And people would just like drop off decks or cards or one sheets and just walk away and wouldn't even go up and like introduce themselves and say, hi, oh my, God. my name. So I. I was just saying, like, <laughs> I had the same experience. Like, I was like, okay, well, my team's at AFM. Maybe something's going to happen. But it's kind of like a shit show where you don't really know what's going to come of it. Well, it's just so funny because, like, you know, I, I, I've told you I've been to AFM before, right? And I, like, like yes, pitched the alternate right. there and everything. And, you know, I set up meetings beforehand. I had, like, 20 meetings or whatever. And, you know, they kind of all played out the same. It's It's like, you know, if you don't have either budget in place or stars attached, like no one wants to talk to you, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of like, yeah, even even when you have the meeting set up, even when you are wanted to, to meet with these people, 
it's like the same old story. And so what I learned from my AFM experience is that like AFM is not really a place to sell a movie. Like it does happen, you know, like you might sell like a, a movie that's not made yet is what I'm trying to say. Right. Like a movie that's pre-sell a, a script movie. only. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could pre-sell a movie there, but like you have to be like in the realm of yeah. like knowing those people and like having already pre-sold movies. But like if you're, if you have a script and you're like a young filmmaker or a writer or whatever, this ain't gonna work out, man. Like, you know, you'll, you'll be lucky to have some meetings and they're going to tell you the same thing that they tell everybody, which is like have a tattoo cat. Uh, cast attached or budget in place. If you have those two things, uh, you might have some luck. But without those things, like, bleh, whatever. And then if you have those things, you don't really even need the distributor, you know, because you can just do it yourself. So, I don't know. I, but I think AFM is great. And, like, I actually had a good... Great for other things. Great if you're not trying to do that. Like, if you're right. if you already have a movie sold... And you're working with a distributor, it's like that's, or, or a distributor or like a sales agent or somebody, like that's where those movies will get sold and bought. And I'm, I'm really hoping that we got some, you know, international sales out of AFM. Haven't heard anything, so I'm not holding my breath, but maybe. And then the pan, I went to some panels at AFM when I was there hmm. and the panels were great. It was really fun to like go and like, you know, sit in and learn about writing or business stuff or whatever it was. There was just a whole bunch of panels. So I feel I like go to AFM like for like the learning experience and the networking and meeting people. Like I met some really wonderful filmmakers there as well. But like, yeah, if you think you're going to try to sell a movie out of AFM, probably not. But if you're going to make some relationships with some distributors. Yeah, you might do that. Like have some meetings, talk to some people. But like, yeah, don't, no one's going to buy your movie. I mean, yeah, I've heard of it happening, but it's like, I don't even believe it when people tell me. But I think it does happen for like the one, like 1% of people. But I don't know, whatever. Well, but I, I think my argument still stands. It's this weird, chaotic place where you don't really know what, what could happen, but most likely nothing will happen. Yeah. But like no, something, totally. something might might strike gold at any moment and that's why people go on the chance yeah. that they might have that chance encounter but going back to what you said you know i'm not solely just doing this grassroots thing i'm doing one by the system and one outside of the system and so right. and, and it's very cool of you to say that that you want to do that too or do something similar and it's just I found it's just increasing your odds, right? It's like I right. don't trust that the system is going to f is going to make that establishment project. I don't trust yeah. it. Yeah, I feel like those like those movies do get made, and those movies will get made through the the establishment and through that process. But like, if you actually want to make a movie and you don't want to just wait for permission, yeah, like that's how I think you made your other two movies. That's how I made my movie, and like. It's just like, it's just every time, and like, that's how like my producer is going into production on the movie in, in November. And that's how that movie came together. It's like, they just hit the pavement. They raised money. They did it over years. And then they've eventually got the budget together and they're going to go make the movie. And, and this is a filmmaker who's already been at Sundance for their first feature, you know, years ago. And so they already have that cred and it still took them years and years and years to raise the money, you know? So it just feels like that that's the name of the game is just... Do it. Do that process, and then you can make yeah. a movie. Well, and it's also a lot of manifesting. Like I'm not a, a secret oh, yeah. new agey person, but we had our first production meeting last week for for my horror feature, Best Friends Forever, and I just got a bunch of people that I want to work with in a room, and I created an agenda, and I was like, let's figure this out, and. We have our dates. We're going to like, as of right now, we're going to start May 8th. We have our budget. We have our breakdown and we don't have 
I mean, I have the tiniest bit of money raised from Speed of Life, but it's this weird, like, we're in the dark. We're in the dark, and I'm, like, steamrolling through the dark, running with my eyes closed, with my hands in front of my face, just hoping I don't get hurt. Does that, that's, like, the worst analogy. No, that's how you do it, though. Okay, yeah, that's what is happening right now. It's super weird. I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to do that. We're just doing it. So that's... That's that's the weird zone that I'm in right now is this like hell or high water. We're making this movie. I have no fucking clue how, but it's just happening. Yeah. Once the train's moving, people want to jump on the train, you know? So like if if you're if you're like, I'm going to make this movie no matter what, people are going to be like, "Okay, cool. I'll help you no matter what. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, how how long have you started? Your patrons been up like what? Two weeks, three weeks, a week, a week. Yeah. And you already have as many followers as, as we do for the making movies. <laughs> I noticed that it's like almost the exact same number. And it's the weirdest. It's like, it's like yeah. the same number of patrons, patrons and the almost the exact same amount. I know. It's crazy. I'm like, wow, Liz, whatever you're doing, we should be doing. This. I know. I was thinking the same thing. I was like, well, shit. <laughs> like, but, they just but, done this months but ago. It's, it's the same thing, though. It's like we don't want to use that goodwill on our podcast when right. we want to save that for our movies, you know. And so it's it's like I'm not going to go awkward. out and be like, yeah, support my podcast, blah blah blah. Like it's more like no, I want to save that energy and that time for when I need to do that for a movie, or if I have to do that again, which I'm I'm sure I will <laughs> at some point. Well, you know, it's like you don't want to ask for too much. We did get. A few backers from the podcast to back also the Best Friends Forever Patreon. Good job, listeners. You're great. (laughs) We love you. It did make me feel like, okay, well, that's really generous and kind. And I didn't ask them directly and I didn't feel like I solicited them and crossed cross boundaries in any way yeah so it, it, like we said yeah. that that's part of the point of this podcast is to promote our shit you know so like i don't think you're crossing boundaries by like you know talking about it on the show i think you should talk about it on the show i talk about my movie every fucking episode buy my movie <laughs> buy it now <laughs> all right Bursell productions.com we know it's Bur- what is it Bursell productions.com uh, no now it's all bursell.com i took Oren and matt's advice and i i changed it from a like a production company name to my name I think that's, that's they, they just think that's the way to go as a director it's yeah. like you know put your name as your your, your name is your brand you know? that's what i do or everything is my name directs by Ulrich or yeah. you know whatever liz Minichel film by, yeah yeah exactly i do it i went with allworkbrussel.com just because i felt like you know whatever yeah that works too <laughs> it's an empire and it doesn't have to just, just be film i mean in like 10 yeah. years it's gonna be like bubblegum or something it's going to be like a completely different <laughs> platform and mode of making and telling oh, stories yeah oh, bubblegum bubble films bubble gum, i do i know that we're probably at the tail end of this but i wanted to do speaking of matt norn they do unpaid endorsements oh, and yeah. i really wanted to mention this podcast that i've become increasingly obsessed with that i think that you might really love have you heard of dead eyes no Okay, so it's this comedian. I think his name is Connor Ratliff, maybe Connor Ratliff. And he auditioned for Band of Brothers when it first came out. And he auditioned and Tom Hanks himself was going to direct the episode that he was going to be in. And he gets fired because he was never supposed to find this out. But Tom Hanks relayed to someone that Connor had dead eyes. (laughs) 
And so the entire podcast is Connor like trying to figure out what that means and like exploring failure in Hollywood. And <laughs> it's amazing. He talks to John Hamm. He talks to Darcy Carden. He talks wow. to Amy Mann. I'm in season one, but I just think all of us who are constantly experiencing rejection and feeling powerless it's like this guy has channeled his failure into like a massive success. And That's amazing. We can all do do the same for ourselves. I've heard I've heard that term before. Did uh, I? It, it confirm like in in relation to actors. Really? Yeah, people have said that. Oh. Yeah, just like in auditions, like just referring to like there's no life behind their performance. Yeah. 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 I love the twinkle eyes. I I use the word twinkle eyes when someone's a really twinkle good eyes is the best. Most people have them or or, yeah. or call them spark sparkle sweet sometimes or sparkle sparkle. Yeah, there's like a lot of actors who have that, and I'll be like, oh, that guy's got the sparkle eyes, yes. you know. And it's like you know, the, the, you know, like when you have that, it's like you, oh. your potential for like success is like amazing. You know, it's such a great quality. Speaking of Patreon, though, don't forget to support. I mean, genuinely, don't forget to support us on Patreon www.patreon.com slash M-M-I-H podcast. We want to wish happy birthday to Colin Stryker, who has the world's best name, and he's also a new Patreon patron. Thanks so much for supporting the show. Colin, yay, happy yay. birthday! Oh, happy birthday! Sorry, there you go. Full celebration for Colin. Colin wrote us and said, oh man, my first chance at fame and fortune. Well, fame at least. And then Colin says, you can just say I'm in early pre-production for my horror feature, The Grove. I'm a great believer in independent filmmakers connecting and supporting each other. He goes on to say, I'm really enjoying your podcast. I started out listening from the earliest on because I wanted to hear your stories from the beginning, but then decided I wanted to listen to what you were saying these days as well. So I'm attacking from both ends. I'm up to number 18 and have gone back just a few from the latest. Liz is great. Thanks, Colin. But I was sad to find out that Timothy dropped out somewhere in the middle. Oh, Colin, you've got a lot to experience. I'm sure I have a lot of catch up to do to hear the story. So... Thanks, Colin. It's real, real talk with that that, that whole Timothy trajectory. It's crazy. And finally, we want to encourage everyone to check out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer. They have a top 25 writers list. They have contests, consultation courses. Sign up today for free. Networkisa.org. And without any more jibber-jabber, here's our chat with Mark Stoleroff. Mark, not to put you on the spot or anything, but could you give us the elevator pitch for Kill Her? The elevator pitch? Yeah. Well, you wouldn't want to be in an elevator, you know, with <laughs> the psychotic murderer of Killer. So, the, the, yeah, it's a trick because it's, I've never done it. So you're, you're asking the, the wrong person. The trick is that, you know, it's a mystery. So I can't give away the, the, the mystery. So, although it's, you know, it's not like Sixth Sense kind of a mystery. Basically, these four young women who are going to the woods to have a pre-batch party, pre-bachelorette party. And they think they're going to be uh, setting up tent, setting up the tent next to their friend's fiance, who's this hunky guy named Jagger and his friends. And they think it's going to be like a hookup and it's going to be a lot of fun. And, and, but they end up setting up their tent next to a very reclusive, scary looking guy named Mr. Rogers. Then a lot of people get killed. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, I, I'll just say this. I mean, the, the plot's not the important part of it. The plot, uh, it's, it's the tone of it. It's a really fun, kind of campy, not taking itself to it's a grisly you know it's kind of a slasher film but does not take itself very seriously and 
is campy and fun. And, you know, I, I hate to say horror comedy because people think that's the worst thing you can say about a, a horror film, I think. But but it, it is I it, maybe it's not a comedy, but it's funny and you laugh and you cheer. And, you know, we've had two screenings and people were cheering you know, at the right moments in both those, those screenings. So it's, it's hitting, it seems to be hitting where we, where we wanted it to. So. Wow. Sounds like a lot of fun. How many days did you shoot the film? 12 days. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. One of those. Been there. Yeah. I know. Can you speak to, or what can you tell us with regard to the budget? I, in fact, I just read something today that said, do not talk about the budget. So <laughs> I always tell people because I'm I'm really open about the budgets of the films that I'm the, you know, that are my film I produce. I mean, this one, this one, I'm not officially a producer on, but I, but I did do a lot of work. I worked in production and on and in post. So I was kind of the production manager in post on this movie. And then I just kind of extended out beyond that to do a lot of the things that I do on my own movies. And so on, a, if it's, if it was a movie like, like the movie I did produce right before this, the last days of capitalism, $50,000 film. And we have no problem telling, you know, what we spent on this one. Not supposed to say, I just say this, when you watch it, I mean, I usually look at the end credits of a movie and kind of guess the budget. You know, it's like, oh my God, they had 18 G&E <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Well, you look at ours and there's, there's two, there's one and one. There's, you know, three people wow. lit the whole movie and you, and the credits go by really fast in terms of the number of people that worked on it. So you can kind of <laughs> gauge it from there. The thing that make, I'm probably most proud of of this movie is just how much movies on the screen for what we end up spending. But it's not a micro budget film in the sense of the kind of movies I, I traditionally do that I line produce. And, and the difference, I think, is that, and I've said this many times, you know, when you, and you, you guys know this, when you make a film, some people say, oh, it's going to be a $50,000 film. Well, $50,000 sounds like a lot of mo money, but a normal film, if you pay for everything, and that's what I call conventional film, you've paid for everything. I mean, what does that cost? 200000 or 250000 if you're if you're shooting in, in Los Angeles, for instance, where there's a high minimum wage and all those kind of things. And, and you know, and every, every movie is different, but if you pay for everything, movies cost, I don't know, whatever the m number is, 200000 So if you make a movie for 100000 that sounds like a lot of money, but you're hundred short. And so <laughs> you've got to get radical in terms of not spending that other hundred thousand dollars. And this movie, we, we pretty much paid for everything. It wasn't like we were, you know, we, we, we had the proper permits and this kind of stuff, you know, but a lot of people did a lot of, you know, multiple jobs. I did, you know, multiple jobs on, on set and it was one location that saves you a little bit and, you know, in a short shooting schedule and just, you know, and we just got so much out of so many, you know, so much out of so many people who weren't paid that much which is what you typically do on these kind of movies and just people that just went the extra yard and in you know, the crew in this movie, we, we had such a great time and they were so great. And I mean, the director who's a very talented guy named Robin August, he did so much more than just direct the film. And he did a lot of visual effects. He, he did, you know, he designed that poster behind me, you know, he did a lot of things. And so it is that kind of an effort. So, you know, people wearing multiple hats and, and not getting paid very much. So. And how did you get involved with the project? So as I said, I'm I'm normally a producer and I normally well just I mean, you know, you come at producing projects differently. But in this one, for several years I've been working for a friend of mine named Liam Finn, who is a line producer. And I've hired him to, to line produce a bigger movie that I was a producer on a few years ago called Devil's Whisper. But he hires me often when he does feature he does a lot of different kinds of things. But when he does feature films, generally we work together and and I usually do these these three roles. He brings me on as a production accountant, and then I'm also usually the DIT, which is, you can imagine, <laughs> I'm not very good at either one of those, but I do it a lot. So, and I mean, you know, it doesn't show up on the screen how bad my production accounting is. 
as long as I'm, you know, as I'm writing the checks, everybody. And then I'm often the post-production supervisor for those films. And I would just describe it as Liam is like the line producer in, in production. And I'm the line producer in post generally when I, when I work with him, I've been doing that a lot with him over the last several years. And that's how this came about. I, I, I'm in post on three films with him. We did a Tubi movie that he actually wrote the script for and was the producer, not just a line producer. And we have a, like 500 visual effects shots on that movie. So oh. it's a it's a, probably one of their bigger movies, I would think. And then we also have this other movie that Liz is somewhat aware of or familiar with that we're still working on as well. So anyway, that's, that's that, how that works. How long have you been involved with Killer from getting involved to, to its release? What was yeah, what's the official about duration? A, about a year. So um, this turnaround was very fast. I mean, I, Liz, I don't know, you know how long it takes you to turn on your movies, but, you know, I mean... <laughs> five I years. Mark, <laughs> it takes five years. So, I mean, Driver X was four or five years. Pig was six years or something of your life that you're, you know, you're not getting paid on. And this one, we, literally we were in the woods last year at this exact time in October shooting this movie. And, and and then we premiered, you know, a year later, which was a great, you know, when you have the, when you do have all the money, even if it's not a lot of money, we didn't, we had very little in post, but we had the money. I mean, I didn't have to go out and raise it. Usually I'm like, I'm raising the money while we're shooting it or while we're in post. And I, you know, I'm, I've done a lot of Kickstarter campaigns and that kind of thing. And it just takes longer. And, and you know, this one very fast. So it was nice. And then compared to all the other projects you've worked on, which is clearly a lot, how difficult was this one? You know, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say it was that difficult, really. I mean, the, there was a day on the shoot that we like to talk about that was like 52 setups and, and it wasn't just, you know, dialogue. It was like, you know, special practical effects, blood effects, that kind of stuff. There was a, you know, there's a lot of that in the movie or not a lot, but there's a decent amount of that in the movie. And it was just a killer long day. We went, you know, everybody's in OT and all that kind of stuff. But we had so much fun on that night. It was freezing <laughs> in the woods, but we were in Big Bear. But I'd say this movie was relatively easy. I mean, even in post where we, you know, don't quite have a lot of the money, that's something I'm really used to. And it was, it's a, fu- it's a fun movie and it was just great to see it kind of how it turned out. And I, I think, you know, I mean, Driver X, I, I told myself after making Driver X, which was just brutal, physically, mentally, emotionally for me it was a brutal movie i'm really proud of the result and i said i'm done i'm like I'm, i've retired i'm not going to produce any movies and i really was kind of serious about that and then mm. and then last days kind of got dropped in my lap and last days was relatively easy because i had help and we had the money was raised and it was a, it was very little money and tiny crew and all this kind of stuff but that's not that's not hard you know to, to me i mean so you know this one was pretty easy i'm trying to dig my way through a question there's a yeah. lot of going on in my mind right now you do a lot on a lot of movies that's probably already evident evident like you know two minutes into this conversation is it for sustainability reasons is it for paycheck reasons do you just want to touch all parts of a movie is it your skill set like what what how do you decide what you're going to do on a film and why are you doing those things yeah that's a really good question actually i don't think anyone's ever asked me that question i mean because it's you know sometimes it's better not to do all that stuff and and when i teach my class. I, in fact, I teach this, I've, I've taught a class for Pig, this film I did, finance myself and did, and then this film Direct X, which was a very similar kind of situation. And and I, I have a 12 hour, like 
making of, you know, driver X class. And in that class, I built this slide because I had thought about it. How many hats was I wearing? And this was also, this was like, this is partly how you get your movies done on a, on a micro budget because you have to wear a lot of hats. And then partly like why you decide you don't want to ever make a movie again, because you've done too much and, and the, and the film's going to suffer. You're suffering and the film likely can suffer too, depending on the kinds of things you're doing, because you really do need help and you want to have people that are good and better at it than you do. So on, I think the number on driver X was 22 hats. <laughs> Some of those, I was the only person doing that like production accounting, obviously on, on, on my own movie. That's easy. I, I do that on some of the other things it's like you know I had, there were other people doing it but I was doing a lot of it on something like driver x it's 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 out of necessity i mean it, i don't have the money to pay somebody in some cases i really enjoy doing that that work in some cases i hate doing that work but i just have to do it you know like with production accounting for instance is something and you know with post production supervising for instance i really love that i mean i'm i like doing that it's fun and i think i'm okay at that even though i don't know cuz i i've never really done it for real i think you know in a sense i've never worked for somebody who taught me the job so that's but yeah that's that's kind of how it works. You just do what you have to do. And, you know, Liam as many, you know, even though we're hiring, you know, it's generally a bigger crew and we're hiring all the people, he does so much stuff himself that he does every, every show. He's the location manager and he's like 10 of the things. And, and usually we're really lean on production. You know, like, like in the woods, you know, I was a PA, I was a runner. I was doing a lot of things besides the DIT and the, and the accounting, you know, because I can do it and he knows he, he can trust what I know how to do. And, you know, that's just how we work together. So. Wow. So speaking of all the, the hats you wear and the many roles that you fill on, on production, it looks like you've done just about everything but direct. Is that by design or, you know, is that something that you're aiming to do or do you just love being a producer more? Like, can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, the, the story, like everybody comes out here to direct. I, I came out here to direct I, when I was in film school or school. And this is, you know, I did, I was in college in the mid 80s when there wasn't a path for people who wanted to make films. I mean, there was like, you know, don't make films or be Spielberg. There wasn't like, you know, El Mariachi or something. You know, I directed those movies. I wanted to be a director and it was so ludicrous to be in Texas and think you wanted to direct films again, because you were like, oh, you're going to be a Spielberg and who can be Spielberg. And so, but I really, you know, the classes that I took, you know, you're editing on 16 millimeter and you're editing, you're cutting with a, with a razor blade. And I mean, I just dug that and I had kind of a vision for things and I, thought I was pretty good at it. But then when I graduated, I chickened out on like doing that for real. And, and my father wasn't really keen on it, you know, like what, what, like, you know, and so I did this, I did two years of investment banking out of college because that's whatever I was doing in 1987, but I was in New York and I was kind of still, you know, keeping up with film stuff. And then my father had a stroke in the middle of my two-year program and I went back to Houston. I, I did my second year in Houston. And then a friend of mine that I grew up with who we used to do skits, you know, for in class or for friends or parents, we, he said, let's start a theater, you know? And I'm like, okay, sure. You know? And I, he and I started this theater. We ran for five years and it was, we took a show to Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the only like Texas show, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. This is in Houston. And, and, you know, that was very DIY and very like, you know, our own money, or we raised, you know, some money, you know, we're 501c3 and we raised some money, but you know, I, did like you know i was running the he was the artistic director i was running the theater but i was acting in the shows and i was doing the sound design for all the shows and 
And it was very much l- l- the kind of experience that I ended up kind of end up doing in film where I wasn't the director, but I was very, you know, had a got to be hands-on creative. And that's really, I chickened out on the directing, I guess, ultimately when I came out here to, to, to quote direct, I ended up running into Peter. I mean, I did a lot of production before I ran into Peter, but Peter Broderick, but when I came on board with Peter Broderick, you know, I, I read about that company at South by Southwest and went, oh my God, I got to be a part of this. And it, and it wasn't because I was going to direct movies. It was going to be because I was going to be involved in something that was around this kind of DIY filmmaking. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to look at a lot of films and decide which films are great made by, by, you know, these kind of low, no budget filmmakers. And that just, and, and Kevin Smith and, and Robert Rodriguez and people like that were on our board of, our board of advisors. And it's like, this is where I want to be because I wanted to make clerks, you know, myself. And so, and that just kind of led into, you know, this kind of wacky, wackadoodle career that I have, which isn't really a career. It's just, I just keep waking up <laughs> the next day doing stuff. I don't and any of it so but i think that i think the the the, the kind of the kind of through line is this DIY, just look kind of, I love that idea of just doing it yourself and not waiting. And, you know, I mean, I made five films with Henry Burial and those were all like, you know, we all wanted to do like a bigger film. And one of them, you know, before we did pig, we were going to, we were going to wait around for money. And it was like, this is, we waited a year before we did driver X. We waited a year because we were going to make a higher budget horror film and it just wasn't happening. And it was almost happening a couple of times and the financing would fall through. And I'm like, you know, and then, you know, he's driving to, to make money. He's driving Uber to make money for his family. And then we're and then he's like, you know, telling me what's happening, you know, doing the late shift in, in, in his car, like all these crazy stories. I'm like, this is the movie we should be making. And, and that's, and we're like, we can make this. We know how to do this. And so it always ends up being that way. Hmm. So yeah, I haven't really missed the directing. I did direct, my brother-in-law has a company. He needed to do a, like an industrial video for his company that was like for people who bought the product, had a how-to video. And he was showing me the how much people were bidding on this thing. Like, and I'm like, dude, I can make this all by myself. One man band. If you don't like it, don't pay me. And I went down, I went to North Carolina and I cast my mother and my sisters and one of their actor friends. And I did direct that. So very proud of it. <laughs> you know, anyway, but yeah, so no, I don't direct. There are several threads in what you just said. I I think we should get to Peter because I don't think people have the full context of Peter brought. I mean, like I worked for Peter for three and a half years, like Mm -hmm. I have it, but maybe not everyone does. But I want to go back slightly because you are responsible for no budget film school. You've worked in micro budget cinema. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, you alluded to it a tiny bit right there, but why, why stay? Why you may start here, but why stay in micro budget? And when I teach, I I tell you, don't stay. (laughs) I've stayed. I know like, don't stay like the whole point of no budget filmmaking is to launch a career. It's not, I mean, I say this right up front. I mean, this is something I think that Peter probably said first, but it's a good place to launch a career. It's not a good place to stay. You know, you want to, you want to kind of show what you can do and then, and then have somebody else pay for things and then move up. And that's what worked very well for a lot of filmmakers. But I think, I think it's, it, if you ask Peter the same question, we probably have the same answer. I don't know what Peter's answer is. I'm not even sure what my answer is, but it, I think that's one of those things that we have in common. We just, there's just something about you know, that kind of DIY mentality or the kind of films that come out of the process. I mean, I, I've also, I mean, I worked with what I call do nothings. We had, we had one on this film. I won't mention their name, obviously, but there's just people that don't do anything and they get a lot of credit and they, they throw their stuff around, you know? And I mean, there's a certain type of person on a film that a certain position that I also won't mention because I'll give away <laughs> maybe what I'm talking about, but <laughs> that, that, you know, I'm on panels with these people. I'm like, do you do anything? Like, what do you do? You get paid more than I do on these kind of movies or whatever. But, and I, I just don't, that's just not why I'm in it. And I, I'm not in it for the money. You know, I don't make any money really. And, 
So it's really hard to say, but I think a lot of it is being able to put your stamp on something is important. I mean, and, and then, you know, why do you do this movie business thing anyway? For me, from the very get go, from when I was a kid and I was five years old and I was doing these skits and stuff, it was always about the reaction. It was always about like, you know, creating something that you thought people were going to like and then showing it to them and then getting that good feeling that they did like it. And, and when I, when I made little films in high school on eight millimeter and, and showed them to the class instead of doing like a book report or something, it, it was all about that. You know, it's like, I've, I've made this thing. I put everything I have into it, like the logical part of my brain, the creative part of my brain. And I, and I came up with this thing and I'm actually actually really proud of it. You know, sometimes you're not, but usually, you know, hopefully you are. And then you spring it on people and they like it. That's it for me. And, and that was killer. The killer screening we had last night, which I wasn't a producer on, but I really did put a lot of my heart and soul in that movie. And just hearing people cheer and, you know, all that stuff, that's it, you know, and it's be great to get paid more money to do it. But, but I think that that's has to do, to do with some of that. And, and, and I don't know, I think Peter must feel the same way. I think with Peter, it's probably, there's just a kind of energy that, that with the people you're working with and that kind of creativity really makes something interesting. There's something interesting that comes out of that. You know, that's probably why he would say that. But And just for more clarity for people who don't know who Peter is, like he, he runs a production company, a post house. Like what's, what's so, yeah, so, like a quick. Yeah. Background. So I, I, I mentioned I was, I came out to Los Angeles to, to finally really commit to a film career in 1994. And for like three years, I was working at Corman, working my way up. This is not answering your question, I realize. It'll get there, hopefully. It'll get there. It's going to get around. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was on like a production track, like first AD kind of a track and doing that kind of, you know, PA, second AD, first AD kind of work. Eventually to learn how to make a movie so I can make my own kind of directing my own movie. And then again, in 1997, I was at South by Southwest and they announced this company, this new company called Next Wave Films, which was started by this gentleman named Peter Broderick. And the company's mandate was to give finishing funds to exceptional low budget films. And in that time, in 1997, there have been, you know, was this is kind of in the middle, maybe slightly more to the end of, of the kind of, you know, this whole revolution in American, you know, cinema, this kind of micro budget filmmaking, which had started in the early 90s. And one of the key people in that movement was Peter Broderick. He had, he'd like been there from the beginning and he was, you know, he was really very involved in like clerks, for instance. And he'd written about it though. And these articles they wrote about in Filmmaker Magazine were like, like explaining everything to everybody. Like, this is how these filmmakers are doing this. And he, he gave the budgets. He interviewed these filmmakers, you know, like El Mariachi and these kinds of films. He gave the budgets and he kind of started to create a model for, there's a model for this kind of filmmaking. It's all this new micro budget filmmaking thing. And up to that point, no one had really kind of gotten it like Peter did. So then he came up with this idea, like, well, let's start a, a finishing fund where we, you know, look at movies that are, cause people get stuck in post, you know, they, they will them into the can with no money. And then, then, you, and then at that time, you know, you had to go out to film, you were shooting on usually on 16 and you had to blow it up to 35 and, and that's where you got stuck and you had to, you know, and so we would come along or he would come along and, and we would, we would watch, you know, thousands of movies on VHS tape. And then we would pick the ones that were really great. And Peter has a, an amazing eye for this kind of thing. He originally had Steve Bannon, if you can believe it. I, mean, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this. <laughs> was helping him with his business plan. I don't know what happened to Steve, Steve Bannon, because if you're friends with Peter Broderick, 
you, you know, it's you're you're not the kind of person that you know he's become. But <laughs> but anyway, eventually got IFC to finance this this company. I sent him my resume. I was the first person he hired full time, and for six years I worked with him and you know and our tiny staff. And we looked at all these movies. And we like the first film that we got involved with was Pi, Jared Aronofsky's wow. Pi. I mean, IFC was like, what? Like they didn't get it. Like they didn't understand why we why we would put our money in this movie. I worked on that film for like four months, and then they got into Sundance, and then the investors wanted to get out of the deal and they made it really hard. We'd already signed a short form and they got out, they, we ended up giving them the film back because it was just wasn't working out. And then, you mm-hmm. know, obviously Pi did what Pi did, but, but then we did Joe Carnahan's first film, Blood, Guts, Bullets, and Octane, that same Sundance. Our next film was Christopher Nolan's Following. We got involved in like 13 films, some amazing films, really talented filmmakers. Amir Barlev did his first film. And then we had a production arm that we created somewhere in the middle. And then eventually, you know, the, the, the company folded and Peter went on to become a, a, a strategist, a distribution strategist and consultant in the area of distribution, because that was kind of an, the part of the of what was hurting our company was distribution. It, things had changed over that six-year period. And I decided to, I thought, well, I'll, I'm going to maybe produce these kind of movies that I've been working on. And I've been talking to hundreds of filmmakers and working very intimately with some really talented filmmakers and people that, people like David Gordon Green, who we didn't do George Washington, but we were, you know, we, we were almost going to do George Washington and became friends with a lot of filmmakers, Craig Brewer and, you know, Mark Forster, people that, you know, that we didn't get involved with officially that, that I met along the way and, and knew how they had made their films. And so I started producing at that point and it wasn't that much longer that I started no budget film school in 2005. So the, the company folded in 2002. So that that's Peter Broderick. He's still a distribution consultant. I still do work for him. He teaches, you know, when COVID hit, he started teaching a big online class. I do a lot of work on that class with him, you know, he's still very much a mentor and um, and a very good friend, and we're you know still very close. So I want to jump to well, maybe it's jumping back to the topic of pitfalls in productions. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you have to do a lot of damage control as a producer, and if you wanted to share any common pitfalls that productions face, and when to walk away from a production, or when to do damage control as a producer, or at any additional. Key, key crewmate. Yeah, I, I haven't had the walk away experience too much. I mean, I, there's so many pitfalls. I'm trying to think that, you know, one of them that kind of comes to mind just because of what just like maybe recent, somewhat recent experience, but well, yeah, actually a couple, two different projects, recent experience is this idea of, you know, when you make a no budget film, you're often not paying people, you know, you know, you've got a small crew, maybe you're not paying people, maybe you're paying them a little bit, you know, you, you know, you as the producer, director, writers usually aren't getting paid at all. And it's all about, cause it's not about the money, right? You're just like, you know, you're all super excited and you want to make it. And you generally want to bring on people that understand that and they're all on board and they're getting, they're getting something out of it too. And it's not the money. And when somebody comes along that you can smell that that's not why they're doing it. Like they need the money. Like, Hey, I know you guys are all working for nothing, but I need to make a lot of money, you know, which happens. You just have to say, thank you very much, but you know, we'll, we'll find somebody else. And, and, and I'm on a couple of things recently that didn't happen. And it, in one case, it literally destroyed the movie. I mean, as much as it could possibly destroy a movie. In other case, it didn't destroy a movie. It's really hurt, uh, you know, us. And I don't, again, I don't want to get specific, but, but that's a thing that, I mean, I teach this idea of kind of balance. I mean, I'm not the, the first person to say this, but this kind of idea of like, you know, there's a balance to these kind of films and, you know, production values all need to be kind of the same level, you know, and personnel kind of needs to be around the same level. And you will have 
a much better shoot if everybody's kind of, you know, all on board doing it the way crazy way you're going to do it. And when you go out of whack in different ways, like either with production value, you know, if you were making clerks, but then you shot clerks on like color 35 millimeter, that's, that's going to destroy clerks, you know, clerks works because all the production values are even and they're all kind of bad and they all, and you know, and you'll notice that the acting isn't that great because there's not one production value that's that's up here that's making everybody everything else look bad. You know, that's kind of the best way to maybe I can describe that. But, but again, that balance kind of comes in a lot of different ways, and so that's a pitfall that I think you know when you you have to be able to realize when there is that kind of person for whatever reason if they're not the right person you got to cut them out like cancer immediately because they will infect. And I know, and I hear these stories all the time. There's another filmmaker that told me a, a, just a terrible story of a, a really good script. It was a script that I actually wanted to produce, but I was busy and they were going to make it on, you know, one location, this piece of this, like really interesting location that their family owned. And they went out there and they had an actor who was not on board and just re- destroyed the whole thing. They shot for a week and then had to abandon the project, lost all this money. This person had like PTSD for like two years. It was a really terrible story, you know? And so anyway, that's one of the pitfalls. I think, you know, I would say, you know, trying to do too much, but I, that's a problem that I do. I try to do too much and I, and it hurt, and it hurts me, but it, you know, usually it kind of, it's okay in the end, but <laughs> I think, cause they, they pop up all the time, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to think on kill her, what we, if we had any of those kind of pitfalls, I mean, we did in post, I'm sure. But anyway, that's, I don't know. That's the one that sticks in my head. Really? This just bringing on people that don't belong. Well, do you have any tips for like identifying these troublemakers, these people who could p- potentially destroy a production? I mean, I feel like it's really hard to tell if someone is going to go nutty, but uh, I don't know if you've they seen... Tell you, they tell you in so many words. I mean, one of them is, <laughs> this is something I teach, you know, interview at least three people for each and every job, no matter how small the job is, if you can. I mean, it's hard to do that when you're kind of rushing into something, you know, even for PA, whatever. If you talk to, if you interview three people for everything, you're going to hear the the right things that people say, and you're going to hear, and you'll know the difference between the wrong thing and the right thing. But again, usually it starts with money. I mean, you know, it's like, hey, I, I like to say, to filmmaker to 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 the cast and the crew this is what we have to pay this is it you know it's not negotiable and you what you want to hear is like i don't care about that yeah what tell me other things about the movie and when you have when you hear when someone goes well listen you know i've been doing this a long time and you know i i get it that this is what you know other people are making on this movie but i i've been doing this a long time i have a lot of experience i need to make a certain thing people who really are good and and do have that experience and don't want to work in your film are just going to say you know i'm sorry this isn't for me they're not going to try to work on your film and make more money that's a usually a dead set thing. So those are, I think it's pretty obvious. Um, sometimes it maybe isn't. And often, you know, if you can work with people you've worked with before, that's a good way to do it. But often, you know, usually what happens there is the you work with these people in the beginning of their career. And the next time you're around, they're now in the union and they're doing really well. And, you know, they're, they, they're, they're thankful they got to work on your film and learn what they got to learn. This is why I never have a problem with like not paying people. I mean, I never get paid for the stuff that I do rarely. And I've, for years worked my way up, you know, not getting paid. And it was great experience. And so people are like, Oh, I can't believe you don't pay. And it's like, I'm not taking advantage of people. They don't have to work on my films. You know, I'm not making money in there and they are, I'm not making money and they aren't, you know, we're all doing this for the right reasons, hopefully. And, and if you're, if you don't have a good reason, then don't do my movie. I mean, and often, you know, I don't have any complaints afterwards of people that like, Oh, you took advantage of me. I work for free under movie. It's like, 
you know, you learned a lot and, and I work for free and no one made any money on these movies and, you know, whatever. So is there a, I'm trying to build a model right now with a few other people for a, a micro budget model that's not 12 to 14 hour days, right? Like maybe it's block shooting or maybe it's half days or I don't, I don't, we're still formulating it. Is there a world where you're not stretching thin, but you're in the micro budget world or does that go hand in hand? Is there a flexibility to the model that you've noticed in all the films that you've done? Well, you know, I mean, I don't believe in templates, for for instance. I mean, not, not that, I mean, a template you're talking about, I do believe, and I've tried to think about these models a lot. I don't believe in like Dove Seaman's template of like, this is the one way to make a no budget film. You shoot, you know, nine days and you have this many people in crew or it's like, I mean, you look at all the, if you know anything about the history of micro budget films and if you studied it the way like Peter and I have or whatever, you know, there is no template. People, you know, you know, do it a million different kinds of ways. But one thing that, you know, goes with it, I think is, you know, the smaller you are, the more days you can, you can do. So you're not, I mean, I don't usually do the 10 day. I mean, this film was 12 days because we were paying people and we were paying people a lot, but we were paying people and, and every day was, you know, was kind of expensive for this kind of, you know, level movie. And so, and we could do it, you know, we were shooting in the woods, for 10 of those days. And then we shot in LA for two days, even though it looks like we're out in the middle of nowhere, we weren't, you know, we were close to where we were, you know, we had like a lot of production near where we were shooting and it wasn't impossible, but on like driver X, that was a 20 something day shoot. And it was 20 something days because partly because we, I never had the money when I was making it. So we shot like a little bit and then we, and then my actor would go off and back to better call Saul. And we would, we would, which was good because we didn't, we didn't know where we were, how we were going to do the next chunk of the shoot. And so we then we, and we'd figure it out. And then, you know, because we're trying to find stuff for free and this kind of stuff. And it's that kind of filmmaking, but we shot over multiple periods over about a year, you know, doing it. Pig was the same way. We shot over a long period of time. It was, you know, 20 something days. So if you have a, if you have a really small crew and you, you can kind of go anywhere, you can shoot anywhere. You can don't have to be one location, which I'm never one location on these other movies like pig and driver X or tons of locations, but we're not, you know, we're not shooting with permits. You know, we're not likely to get shut down. I mean, I kind of know that drill, how to kind of avoid that. It's something I teach in my class, but if you can find, I think the, the one, one of the templates that, you know, Liz, I, I would be, you know, exploring is, like if you can find like a core group of creatives that can do a lot of different things and they and they really represent the core things you kind of need. So you've got, you know, you've got a writer, director, producer, you've got a DP, which is a good person to have on board who can do a lot, you know, they, they often do a lot of things. They also have a lot of, you know, connections with equipment and with people and, you know, can bring that to bear. And an editor is really great to have as a kind of a core group. But if you had like this kind of core group of people who were, who really weren't doing it for the money, whether they got paid a little bit or not, but they were like, maybe we're all splitting like the back end with them. If there, you know, if there was any, you know, and you wore a lot of hats and you simplified things so that, you know, you're not making something that's impossible or, you know, or you're shooting in you know, a modular way where, you know, you can shoot 90% of the movie with that core small tiny group and then you have your kind of big set piece day where you bring on extra people because maybe you have you know stunts or you know practical effects or something like that i mean those are things that you know i would not have in a kind of micro budget film unless you were unless you were a practical effects person and that's what you just do all day long because they slow you down they're expensive they're hard to do on a no budget you're usually paying people to do you know those kinds of things i mean there's just you know so knowing what costs money and what doesn't is is important you know and writing the script around the things that you have which is the which is the key to what i teach obviously i mean these are things that create a model that you know doesn't have to kill you and i think if you're if you own the gear and you and you're not paying for the location which is often how i'm doing things and you have a small group that's not 
not getting paid much or or whatever, then yeah, you don't have to shoot long days. I mean, you know, on the movies I do like Driver X, there was no OT. We didn't, you know, we weren't paying OT, but we weren't, you know, we we just weren't doing it. I mean, we were shooting at night a lot of the time, and we only had maybe ten or eleven hours anyway. But you know, you work with us with that kind of a in that kind of a film, people will leave you if you're you know you 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 go beyond twelve hours anyway. Uh, on a movie like Kill Her, where we're, you know we're pe- we're paying people with payroll and all this like stuff, and there's payroll rules, and you know we're paying OT and all this kind of stuff. It's more conventional in that sense, and you just have to get it all done. And so you you know you are going into OT. It's a different deal, and it costs you money and and whatever. And that and the stuff I do with Liam is generally you know we're 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 more buttoned up and we're doing it more legal and all this kind of stuff. Not that I do anything illegal on my movies, um, but, <laughs> but yeah. So I think, I think, you know, uh, I don't know where that, where I'm going, where, where the, what the question was, but, but I think it sounds like of, there's flexibility. I'm, that's yeah. what I'm hearing. Yeah. I mean, and again, I think it all just starts with a project. You know, you write, you write around what you have and you try to create something that's easy, quote, easy. Like I say this a lot to Adam, this, the writer or director of the, of the last days of capitalism, he's a real screenwriter. I mean, he, he wrote 21 bridges he wrote national champions he's 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 finishing this couple of project big projects right now for these you know for stallone's company their cat they're casting and looking for director on this on this other movie he did and and then this he's doing this other big movie he's a real you know hollywood kind of screenwriter but you know we hope to work again and just sent me a script for something that we would try to make for like $150,000 or something. But I tell him, you know, I have a friend who bought a, a second house in South Carolina, about two hours away from where my, my family lives in North Carolina. It's a big house on six and a half acres of woods. It's in a neighborhood, but it, it feels like it's out in the middle of nowhere. And it's not in Spartanburg. And I'm like, there's a movie we can make in this place. She's not even there half the year. You know, she, she has a place here and, and she's an actress and she wants to do this movie, whatever it is. And I just look, I just, I mean, if, I mean, Liz, you might be like this. You just start to, you, when you see things that you can put in a movie, you're like, Oh, that you just, that's a marker. Like that, <laughs> that is something I can write into a script and I can use it, you know? And this is something, again, I t- I've been teaching. This is Peter Broderick one-on-one, you know, write for what you have, El Mariachi, you know, whatever. But, the, you know, but I tell them like, you know, there's a, t- there's so many movies we could make in this location and the location is so hard. It's usually the one of the hardest things shooting here in Los Angeles, like the hardest thing to try to find. And so make your life easy and just like write for that easy location. You know, now it's not hundred percent easy because we got to get people in gear and to, to South Carolina. I don't know if there's any, you know, if it's any, if any of that's there, I mean, there's probably not very good actors there not to rip on South Carolina, but in Spartanburg, I don't know. I mean, you know I mean, I'll find out, but, but anyway, but you know, so there's, there are things that become harder when you start thinking about it, but, but those are things that, you know, make your life easy and write for the things you have and write for actors that you have that are great, you know, that you, they're easy, easy people to work with and that aren't going to be hard or pain in the butt. I mean, there's, it's, you know, you can build all that stuff in from the very beginning. And if you can get, I don't know, 80 to 90% there, and then you have like 10% you're not really sure about and how you're going to fill it in. And maybe you have that one person that's kind of difficult but you can manage them or whatever then you know that's that's you know that's not so hard so i want to hear a little bit more about no budget film school like you know you started way back in 2005 you know it's still going today many many years later like how much energy do you put into to the site like what's the goals of it like you know just talk a little bit about you know the the whole thing yeah i mean i i wish i could say better things about it i i you know when i started it i was (laughs) uh, well i mean i was i had just finished making this kind of first film after next wave which uh you know i thought i knew everything and i learned so much from that making that film is called true love and it was a sundance screenwriters lab project was the second film with henry burial just barely missed getting into sundance and 
uh, I learned so much. I'm like, I kind of built the class around that. And there were still things I was hearing people because I used to, I would do these like presentations or be asked to speak and I, for, to film organizations or whatever. And people were still saying the same dumb things that they've been saying for several years that we would hear when we were at Next Wave. And we're like, that's not true. I, I'll teach a class that kind of, here's the truth, you know, and I didn't, you know, I didn't make this up, you know, other people smarter than me made this up or I, you know, but I, or I learned it doing it myself. And, and so there was a lot of energy around the budget film school when I first started in the first couple, two or three years. I mean, I, and I just have to say this, I start, I built this website in 2005 that looked old in 2005. I'm not joking. It looked like the nineties in 2005 and it's still my website and it's, it doesn't even work anymore. Like I can't edit it anymore. It's like that terrible. And for 10 years, I've been talking about like, you know, getting on a WordPress site and whatever, and I've spent money to do that. And it just hasn't happened because I get busy and I know there's some weird thing in my head. So if you go to nobudgetfilmschool.com, you're going to see this, like, what is this, you know, but there's still a lot of content there and you can kind of peruse, you know, it also lets you see what websites look like back in the day. It's kind of fun in that way. <laughs> so in the first couple of years in a budget film school, I, I was basically teaching this two-day class, in-person class, at, usually at Raleigh Studios. I would have guest speakers come. I've had amazing guest speakers over the years that I'm really proud of. Someday I'll take all the, because vi- I shot video of all of them and I'll do something with the video. You know, I have a lot of someday <laughs> things with No Budget Film School, but but people like, you know, Jay Duplass and David Gordon Green and Joe Carnahan and Mira Minan and, and um, anyway, just this long list of like really interesting filmmaker, Craig Zobel, you know, without, you know, back in 2007, you know, before he did Mayor of Easttown. And um, um, so, so, but I, you know, I, I was teaching it pretty consistently, like maybe, you know, once or twice a year in between projects. I, I did it. I did it in different cities. People would invite me to come to their city and do it. I was very active, you know, with a newsletter and writing, you know, writing stuff for kind of my blog and, and all this. And then, and then things got really busy, like around 2016. And I kind of did, I don't, I don't remember the last class I taught in person, but it was, it was a while ago. And then, and then I was talking about, you know, I have all this content. I really want to get this new website going. And then I'm going to get back into like really, you know, focusing on no budget film school in addition to all these projects that I, I was doing. And then COVID hit. And then I had all these like side hustles with, with COVID because we, you know, Liam and I were working on a big, big project that got shut down right in the middle of that. And I was, and I was, in, you know, we were, we had just going to the first festival with the last days of capitalism when COVID hit. And instead of like working on the website, which is what I said, then I started doing all these for no budget film school. I started doing zoom stuff, which I was, I'm really proud of the stuff that I was doing with the zoom stuff. Uh, I created a, a, a bunch of like strands. I created this thing called no budget confidential, which, which is essentially the guest speaker portion of my two day in-person class where I bring a, you know, a filmmaker on to talk about their, you know, no budget film. And these are very structured. This, this isn't like I haven't prepared. I've talked to this filmmaker like 10 times before I, you know, we do the, we do the event. I have a, I have clips and stills that are all lined up and ready, you know, and, and so that we're illustrating what we're talking about. And, you know, we have trivia contests and I mean, it's a whole thing, you know, really proud of that, that program, no budget confidential did seven or eight of those. I did this thing. I re- brought something back that I had started years ago called no budget film club where we screen a do, do virtual screening of a, of a of a no budget film and then you know do a, a live you know discussion with the with the team and that kind of a thing um i did i created something called the guest expert series which i did two or three of those these are again like zoom events there might have been oh, and, I, and i created this you know driver x 12 hour 
you know, virtual class. And I was doing all that for a couple of years. And then beginning of this year, I just got so busy. I was in post on these, I was shooting and in post on these projects. And I literally hadn't done anything this year for, for no budget film school, which I, which I kind of regret because I, you know, I mean, I feel like to some degree, I still love doing that. I, I still feel like, you know, there's stuff to teach, but I just got busy. And, and I, and I have one of those kind of serial brains where it's like hard to like, do 10 things at one. I mean, you know, you can do 10 things on one time in one movie or whatever, but it's hard to, you know, bounce around and stuff. And I like to focus on something. And so I'm definitely going to get back to it. I'm, I'm hopeful I'll get this website. It's not going to be, it doesn't even have to be a great website. It just has to literally be functioning website that I can edit. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of where No Budget Film School is now. I'd still say to somebody, you know, sign up for No Budget Film School because, because I, I do still write stuff and I am going to start doing, I've got amazing No Budget Confidentials that I want to do with some kind of new things I'm learning. Filmmakers that are doing some things that I, that I just learned about in the kind of new world of where we are right now with streaming and all this stuff that I'm really excited to kind of talk to these people, learn their story and then, you know, spring that on people. So anyway, so they go to nobudgetfilmschool.com. I think you can still sign up there and um, get on my mailing list. And then, you know, eventually, and a lot of these programs I was doing are, were free. So the No Budget Confidentials were all free. So, you know, good good value there. That's, I think that's my last question. I don't know where Ulrich is in terms of his cue, but you've said a few times you don't make any money. <laughs> like, so I'm trying to figure out, I mean, I see you have a nice place. You, you know, like, yeah. Nice place. <laughs> it looks nice to me. I mean, compared to what I'm, you know, my Dyson behind me. But <laughs> how, if you feel comfortable, how do you, like, where, where is the living coming from? Oh man. I mean, I, 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 I do, I have these like side hustles and I did a bunch of them during COVID when I wasn't doing any production stuff. So I make a little bit of money working on like a, like a Liam film. I mean, if it's literally, if it's driver X, I'm putting my own money in, I'm getting money from my friends and family. I'm raising money on Kickstarter and that's how we make that movie. And I'll work on it for four years and I'll get paid a dollar and I don't get the money back, you know, from distributors. So <laughs> we could talk about that too. You know, it's, that's a terrible, you know, thing to talk about, but I mean, I always say first thing, if you take my class, the first thing you're going to learn is like, don't do this for the money. If you're doing this for the money, you know, raise your hand if you're doing this for the money, you know, there's better, there's other things you can be doing for the money. Like, I stay and invest in banking, you know, <laughs> sell real estate, beg on the street, you know, is better than <laughs> making films. But there's like 10,000 other reasons to make a movie. And I teach those reasons and, you know, but, but don't let money be the metric for your success because you, you'll fail every time. And there's, you know, and there's so many other good reasons to make a, a no budget film, but I do get paid a little bit on the movies I work on, you know, during COVID, I, a friend of mine, uh, a very close friend of mine had created this product, this like this beauty product that she started selling on Amazon. And I, she didn't know how to do that. And I kind of took over her Amazon page and I do that. I do some work for my, uh, some financial stuff for my family. I get paid a little bit to do that. I do, I shoot video stuff like for, again, for people that I'm close to, I don't, I'm not, a, I don't consider myself very, that great of an editor or videographer, but I own the gear and I can edit. And I, so I do videos for like, I have an ex-girlfriend in, in Houston who, who made it, who was a tremendous actress in this film that we, that uh, we did at Next Wave called Somebody it was in dramatic competition, $3,000 movie that it was in dramatic competition in 2001 at Sundance. She was the star of this movie. And then we dated for five years. And then 
you know, we're still very close. She's like the now like the number one dog trainer in Houston. She has this big dog training facility there. And I do, I go to Houston and shoot videos for her, she, you know, where I grew up. So I've done that kind of thing. I don't know. They're just like these kind of <laughs> side hustles. I'm in debt. You know, I have a lot of, I have good, somehow good credit still. I made a lot of money when I was investment banking that I, that I invested and I've still, there's still a little bit of that left over, I guess. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's not a, it's a, it's a you know, troublesome sore subject, but, but yeah, I, I, and I, you know, and I don't, I don't, I never wanted to do to make money in the film business. If that makes any sense. Like I, there's other, th if I was going to make money, I think there were other things I would do. And when I came out here to make, you know, to make my own kind of clerks, which is what I, literally that was the film that I, that sent me out here. I saw clerks at the Houston film festival. And I'm like, that's it. I'm making that. I can make that movie. That's the kind of movie I want to make. And I can get, I have $30,000 saved up and I can do that. And I came out here, I read this book, called hello he lied which i read that yeah yeah it had probably just come out at that time oh. and i read about it, half of it and went this is not what i i'm not coming out here for this bullshit you know <laughs> it's all about gaming getting one over on somebody and gaming mm. things and i'm like i just want to make movies i don't want to get one over on somebody and all that stuff i just i, I thought that is the and, and i had a business degree and i had come from investment banking and there's a, there was a whole probably a path that I could have done certainly I right out of school you know where I where I had this because no one at U University of Texas was making films and in, in the business school literally zero I mean I I would know because there, there were only 30 people a semester making films no one was doing that you know and I had this like whatever that skill was but I did had no interest in working for a studio or any of that stuff and you know now I kind of that's where I look at the regret I'm like yeah I could that doesn't sound as horrible now as maybe it did back then but but I had no interest in, in doing and doing that. And it was never about making a lot of money in the business and, and, and getting whatever those kind of perks are. Those weren't the perks I was interested in. You know, the perks I'm interested in are kind of putting a stamp on something, whether I directed it or produced it, making something I, that I thought, you know, was really proud of making that I think people would like certain people, you know, not everybody maybe. And, you know, and going to film festivals, I love going to film festivals and showing off, you know, we're taking kill her. I have to say, you know, we just we just world premiered at ScreenFest. They gave us an encore screening because we sold out our, our first screening. And, and now we're going next week to Minneapolis to the Twin Cities Film Festival and hopefully to more film festivals in the future. But, you know, that that's that's why I did it. And so I never, you know, I mean, I, you know, I do need to make money like everybody else. And and I've got to think about, you know, what that the next thing is going to be for me, if, it, if it's going to be something that Liam hooks me up with or if I go and find something else or whatever. But but it's I've just never done it for the money. So you pretty much answered my like like next question in that previous question. So I think we can go to our final six questions. So I'll start off. What's the first film you made and how do you feel about it now? I, I have to say there were two first films because one of them was kind of the, the first film I made was called a trip to the zoo, which was, it was a book report for something. It was, I was getting out of doing a, something I had to write because I was a terrible writer. And this was freshman year in high school. I think it was 79 or 80. And I went to the zoo with my girlfriend at the time with this eight millimeter camera. I had no way to edit. So it was all edit and camera. And there was no, it was silent. And I just shot sh stuff at the zoo. And then I put it to this uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer song, which was the perfect song. You know, I can't remember the name. Was it Hoedown? I can't remember. Anyway, and I got an A and I was like, oh my God, this is easy. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? And and so the next film, which, I, which I'm very proud of, which was called Tarzan, which was, we had, we were supposed to read book was supposed to book report and my my partner and i my friend of mine and i who grew up next to each other he read the book i didn't even read the book he read tarzan the ape man and we made tarzan again edit in camera but it was much more involved it was a silent film and then i and 
then I I edited it all. I mean, I, I shot it all. He there were three different Tarzans because he had to go he had to go for his for like a family vacation. I had to fill in and be Tarzan. I had to find someone to shoot the last part of the movie. It was you know, but it was epic though. We were out in the woods swinging on vines, swimming in the bayou and stuff. And then I did this amazing soundtrack to that movie that I'm still. I mean, this is like again like sophomore year in high school. Still incredibly proud of. They had all this kind of music in it and and whatever. And, and um, so yeah, I'm, I'm and then I did Dante Go to Hell, which was Dante's Inferno with dolls. Anyway, so I'm proud of all those movies. <laughs> What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Oh shit! <laughs> can we do pass? No, I'm, we I'm can sure, come back I, to it if you want. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've gotten a lot of great advice, but I mean, that's hard for my brain to kind of pull out of the void i don't know if it helps the next question is what's the worst advice so (laughs) if if only bad advice is coming to mind there's that too i don't do i get a lot of advice i'm trying to think um (laughs) i heard some stuff on this on kill her that i can't again can't kind of repeat like people telling me how to do things i'm like you don't know what you're talking about (laughs) clearly i've been doing this for and i hate that i've been doing this for so long because i i learn i feel like i don't know anything you know i've been doing this for so long i don't i feel like every time i learn new things and i don't know anything and then this person said something to me and i'm like just don't you just now admitted you don't know what you're talking about because that is the dumbest thing i've ever heard but i god i'm terrible at this uh don't ask me a favorite song because that's a hard one for me shit all right good, keep, pass i'll come back see if i can come back. terrible I'm, I'm messing up your podcast no it's okay <laughs> do you have a goal as a filmmaker oh my god i used to probably think i my goal was to maybe someday direct but i that just seems so hard and there's people that do it so much better than me <laughs> that man i would just don't want to fail like that but i mean i would love to make a film that gets back into sundance i mean we we you know we took seven films of sundance at next wave and henry and i you know that first film somebody which was the was the first film i did with henry it was a next wave film but i you know i was a producer on that film and did a lot of work on that film you know after you know in, in post you know we we every film we were hopeful would get into sundance and it, they just didn't after that at some point and it would you know but i, I feel like maybe I, that boat's passed for me i'm old and i'm white and i just don't think i have a, 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 my finger on what they would be looking for now i mean you see that you know the kind of filmmakers that i mean it's always been young people but i just feel like i'll probably never have films <laughs> and it's and i just you know the kind of stories i'm think i want to tell aren't those kind of films anymore but so i don't know i just you know it would be to make something that actually did make its money back for the for the investors or if, it, if i was the investor that caught on to something that that you know broke out you know driver x i was super proud of driver x it got released by ifc films it played in theaters it was on hulu but you know did it really break out and kind of get into that next level of whatever i don't i guess it didn't and i and i and and, and even though i screened it with like i went back to to, to my to Houston and screened it for like a makeshift 35th reunion, high school reunion. And we sold out this huge theater in Houston and people just loved it. Cause it really is a film for like 50 something year olds. That that's again, why I'm, that was one of the greatest nights of my life. Like that's why I kind of do it, you know, like, and so those experiences are th- those, those are the kind of things I would look forward to doing again. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you've get, you'd give yourself? Ooh, I've given my nephew this advice. So this is the one thing I, I can't answer this one. It's like, I think, you know, I thought I was, I would think I was pretty good at the directing thing. 
And and the first film that I that I edited, for instance, in film school, and again, the the project you you shot a hundred feet of film and you edited it down to seventy five. You had three non sync soundtracks. If anyone knows how to edit on film, and so you shot everything MOS, and then you had to go back and you had to record all the sound, and you did it on mag, and and you had these synchronizers. It was this whole. I mean, most people when they made their first films, edited their first films in film school in nineteen eighty six mess this up the technical not the creative part but the lining it all up because it was very technical and i remember i shot this thing i did i recorded the sound i sat down and 13 hours later i'd i'd edited this whole project and it went by like that i was like i had no idea i was like oh my god i've been sitting here for 13 hours in the middle of night and i just start to finish edited this film and i'd never done it before i was cutting on you know razor blades and i realized and it was good and i was very proud of that film it got a really good grade i was very proud of the next thing i did in that class and i thought i'm i'm good at this and then i chickened out and i chickened out so many times along the way because i wasn't sure i was talented enough and 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 what i the advice i would give is forget the part of your talent enough it's like it's super important if you're going to make it really big but also it's a craft and you get better at it and do the thing that you're super passionate about because you will put in the time and the effort and it'll go by like nothing it's not work for you and that's what you'll shine with that and don't try to find the thing that you should be doing which is my whole life of like oh i guess i should be doing this and i should be doing this and i those weren't the things i wanted to do and it's like try to find the thing that you really get excited about and then you, you know things will fall into place you know for you. I love that. Great advice. Last question. Is making movies hard? Yeah, it's hard. But again, if you're doing what you love, it's it goes by. I mean, Robin just said that the other night when we were on our stage. It was hard. And that, that 52 setup day was like hard, but everybody was having so much fun that, you know, you can make it hard and not fun, which I've done again, as I mentioned. I mean, I broke, hurt my back and I didn't sleep and I was stressed out and I couldn't sleep and, you know, whatever. You can make it like that. But, but yeah, it, it's hard on all levels because if you're, if you're doing it all yourself, there's a certain difficulty to it. But if you're doing it and there's other people calling the shots, that's <laughs> hard too. And I, and I usually don't, I'm usually not under that system, but I, I am when I'm working with Liam, you know, there's, there's financiers and there's people that put all the money up and, you know, they, they want it done the way they want it done. And you, you have to kind of go through them and you have to kind of listen to what they say. And often they don't, they've never done it before. And you still have to listen to what they say and you know better. And, you know, so th that's not easy either. So it's hard, but it's, it's the, you know, it's one of the greatest things in the world to do to make a movie. And if you, if that's what you want to do, you know, in your life. And so, so yeah, it's when I teach my class, I say to the people after I tell them, you're not going to make any money doing this. I'm like, you know, if I told you, you know, I, I say something like this, I say, you know, who here, like, so now I've told you, you're not going to be successful doing this. Raise your hand. If you're not going to make your movie now that we're about to, I'm about to teach you how to do in two, you know, for, in the next two days and no one really raises their hand, you know, and it's because they don't care. They want to make a movie and they, they, well, most of the people taking my class are like, maybe they're 40 years old and they've, they've had another career and they've always wanted to do it. And it's like, do it, you know, go do it. You know, if you're terrible at it, you know, you'll get it out of your system and you can move on with your life. You know, if you're good at it, maybe you're Chris Nolan, who knows? I mean, I worked with Chris Nolan and I didn't know he was Chris Nolan at the time. You know, I mean, we don't know until we actually do it. And the Duplass brothers like to say, you know, with, with their first films, they did, it took them a while to, to develop their voice and figure out who, 
or develop their craft to figure out what their unique voice was. And that takes several projects to do, you know, so go out and make a bunch of stuff and don't spend any money on it. You know, if you had, you know, $10,000, instead of making a $10,000, you know, short film, I would make 10, $1,000 short films or something, you know, I would make a bunch of stuff and see what you're, you know, and kind of give yourself a different goal for each one and try to, you know, stretch yourself in different ways with each one and, and then maybe figure out what you're good at doing. This is something I would do for myself if I wasn't such chicken shit, you know, um, and I still talk about wanting to do that. It's the same things that I advise other people to do, but it's, it, you know, that's somewhere I got a far afield of what we're talking about. But anyway, but that's what that would be. Uh, that's, there's some advice. There's some advice I would give. Do you want to encourage anyone for a call to action, like to yeah. follow you or I, I don't know what, in what world yeah, what would so, be the CTA? So I, I, I mentioned a bunch of filmschool.com. Probably the other, the better site is markstoloroff.com. It's not any better looking. I, I It still works though. <laughs> and I can still update it. And if you're interested in either what, either anything I've talked about, like the films I've done, there are links to that. Some of the better things I've written are, are on that site as well. And the kind of blog section, things I'm more I'm most proud of. They're kind of evergreen things that I've written. And again, I, you know, if you're interested in like no budget confidential and these kind of things, these programs I'm going to be doing next year, you can sign up at nobudgetfilmschool.com. I don't even think we have a website yet for killer. And that's a whole, whole long story, but, but, but remember the film kill her. It's one word, K I L L H E R. If you like fun kind of, you know, horror, horror films, horror slasher, comedy, grindhouse kind of fun films. We are just starting our festival journey. I think that's probably all the things that I would be promoting. Are you ready to take your screenwriting career to the next level? If you're a new or aspiring screenwriter who feels lost or stuck in your career, the Working Writer School is here to teach you what writing courses don't. Writer Nicole Bennett said, After taking this course, I have a clear framework for the mindset, productivity, networking, and financial management skills needed for longevity in this industry. Former student Dylan Evans said, There are a ton of writing classes out there, but this course helped me work through the stuff that I couldn't find anywhere else. I feel more prepared and more knowledgeable to take on the next phase of my writing career. And Jay Burlingham calls this course the map. This course has given me a map that I will return to again and again as I move forward in my career as a writer. Use code MMIH for 10% off from now until January 31st and go to theworkingwriter.com. That's theworking, W-E-R-K-I-N-G, writer.com to sign up today. Eric, what do you remember about our talk with Mark Stoloroff? Mark is an amazing human being. <laughs> I can't believe all the things he does. It's it's crazy, you know, and he like makes his living completely on filmmaking, you know, and making features, which I think is incredible and rare, you know. It's like a lot of people do that, but they also do commercials, they do other things, they do corporate video, but like the fact that he just only works on features is pretty great and pretty pretty unique. I thought it very fascinating that he didn't doesn't hasn't directed and isn't interested in directed because he's like done every single other thing on set, but like he just hasn't done that yet for some reason, like maybe because he just doesn't want to. And I really liked hearing about like how like how his pers- his perspective on producing a movie, you know, like like he works on movies a lot. Like he'll do like this crazy trifecta of post of accounting you know film accounting he'll do uh on-set data wrangling and then he'll do post-production supervision (laughs) so it's three roles like two of them are kind of connected but the other one accounting is not at all and then that's that's what he'll contribute to movies and he's like doing two right now but it's like he'll he's willing to work that hard on a movie you know for money but then he's not willing 
like he only wants to work the extra bit harder on producing something if it's like perfectly like the right movie, which I, which I get, you know, but it's like, and, and to some degree, it's like, well, why don't you just produce more and then have more say? I don't know. Anyways, well, what do you think? He's not going to get more money, right? I mean, under the current system. Probably, probably less money. Yeah, as exactly. A <laughs> At least he's charging. Yeah, I think you're onto something in that. I think he should direct. I Maybe there's something deep down. He kind of, he got really into talking about the first film he ever made. I don't know if you remember. And there's yeah. a moment where you're like, oh, Mark, you want to direct. I, I know you want to direct, but maybe there's something else going on. Or maybe it's, you know, a sustainable living kind of thing. Because you're not going to get paid to direct as an emerging filmmaker either. So let's concentrate on paid work. But if Mark's listening... I really hope that he follows his bliss, whatever that is. I don't know if we talked about it too much, but when I was working for a guy named Peter Broderick, who's a really well-known distribution consultant, Mark came up all the time. Like I, oh, really? like Mark was Peter's former partner at, at Next Wave Films. And so like Mark was this like unseen celebrity in our circle. Like, oh, let's ask oh, Mark. Wow. We'll talk to Mark about it. Mark will help me with my newsletter. Mark's going to help me with my email account. And then, and then, I don't know if you remember, but Mira Minan got the job in equity because of Mark Solaroff's recommendation. So it's just oh. like, he's such a mover and a shaker, this guy. So well-connected, so hardworking. Yeah, he is like, I like how you put it. He's an indie film hero. I, re- I said your words, but they were your words. <laughs> yeah, he is an indie film hero, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm really excited to see what, where he goes next with his career. And like, I feel like that kind of thing of working on movies full time is like what I want my life to be, you know, when I as I progress. But we'll see if I can if I can swing it or not. Yeah. Fingers crossed. OK, it is very, very exciting time right now because we are going to play another round of the game. And this is a question pr- provided by a listener this time, Colin Stryker, who we've talked about twice already in the show. And just for people who don't know, the game is basically this challenge where we'll come up with a question, or usually Eric does, but then in this case, Colin did, about like a basically a production like scenario where you have a big, tough decision to make. And like, what will you do in this tough to, to solve this problem? We ask them blind. So like, you know, Liz has not heard this question. She does not know what the question is going to be asked. And then she'll do her best to, to answer it and, you know, solve this issue. And then I'll weigh in on my take on it if I have a different take. But without further delay, here is Colin's question. You're ready to go into production on your first feature, a labor of love, but one you will hope will earn you and your investors an appreciable profit. You're cast, you've cast your lead with an unknown actor who you think on a scale of 1 to 10 is a 9 for the part. But then your casting agent contacts you to let you know a B-list actor is really interested in doing the role and you're pretty confident with this person that you can get a significant extra funding, including a sizable marketing budget. But in your assessment, the actor is about a 6 on a scale of 1 to 10 for the part. Do you cast the B-list actor who's a 6 out of 10 or do you stick with the 9 out of 10? You go with the B-list actor. I think (laughs) there are a few things that are up for debate or I guess not fully explained here. Like one person's B level is another person's like F level. Right. So (laughs) I think if this is sincerely a B level actor, you're in great shape. B level actors are like the best. Like I aspire to work with B level actors. If this is like, you, you you know, Colin's just being very kind and using B as a euphemism for just like 
someone really far down that chain, then we've got a different situation. Six out of 10. Oh, wait, what are you about to say? I, I was just guessing by Colin's question that he, yeah. he might be like, you know, and no offense, but like the Michael Madsons of the world. That's you know? kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Or who's another good one? Tony Todd. Yeah. Tony Todd. <laughs> oh, good old Tony Todd. <laughs> yes. What's the other one that is, gets brought up all the time? Eric Roberts. Oh, Tom Sizemore. Tom Eric Sizemore. Roberts. Yeah. yeah. Though I think Michael Michael Madsen is... These are all actually really good actors. They're, they're good just, actors, but they're they're in everything. And, and their anything. brand is very schlocky because of that, it's right? It's yucky. Not, yeah, not, not valuable anymore because yeah. of all the movies they've been in. But Nick Cage used to be in that pocket and now he's out. Bust it out. So maybe there's future for, for all these other actors. I think six, six roundup, you get a 10. If you were going to say five out of 10, don't cast. Six gives me promise. I'm basically saying like, if my <laughs> goal is to make money, then you have to make casting decisions that put you in the pocket of potentially making money. Having an unknown as your lead for this film when the other option is someone who can garner you funding doesn't seem like the smart move ever. If you just think of it as a pragmatic equation, you will get funding and marketing budget and probably distributor interest and probably film festival interest. Like there's just a waterfall of repercussions if you cast a B-level actor, if they are indeed a B-level actor. And if they are a C, D, E, or F level actor, and I'm sorry, actors out there for being so shitty to you by calling you different letters. But if you're a lower alphabetically (laughs) prioritized actor, then you are going to be branded for, you're branding the film with your potential, right? So like, if it is Michael Madsen, sure, I don't think Sundance is going to be as interested, but Grindstone out of Lionsgate might be interested in the film now, right? Versus an aggregator for self-distribution. So if if your goals are to make money in the traditional distribution marketplace, you recast that actor. Yeah. What do you think? Like if it's Michael Shannon, though, you're in good shape, you know, right? Fuck yeah. You're in great <laughs> is, shape with Michael is Shannon. He, That's is he A. B-list? That's A-list. Okay. What? I mean, I'm, I really don't know like what people think A-list and B-list are. Like, you know, is yeah. B like... I like think is B's A, like Brad um, Pitt and then yeah. B, Michael Shannon. Though I'm trying is... to eradicate the Brad Pitt comparison because he's such a horrible person. So it's like A is like <laughs> Charlize Theron, right? A is Charlize Theron. <laughs> A is Viola Davis. A is Denzel Washington, you know, whatever. B is, I mean, everyone's going to disagree with me, but I think B is like Michael Pena. Michael Pena is amazing. We love him so much. But is he going to guarantee the success for your film? I can't say that he will. Maybe. He might get you funding. Is he going to get you box office success? Probably not, unless it's in the pocket of other Michael Pena films. Like, I don't know. He did a few of these movies a while ago where he was like the lead in like a sci-fi genre film or the lead in a horror movie. Like I saw him. Then I don't know if he's still doing those as much. I love him. He's such a good actor. He's great. He's just It's hard to take him seriously though like, Oh cause sometimes, he does that kind of goofy He's so thing. funny yeah. And like you know I was watching this sci-fi movie he was in And it's just like Like I don't know if I can take him as the badass But I mean if he's cast well And they're like leading into his strengths As like this like comedic guy Who's also a great actor Cause he is a great actor too Like don't get me wrong Like I'm not yeah. saying he's not a great actor It's just I feel like he's got that thing about him That just makes him He's just, he's just so funny Yeah <laughs> Well cause so. it, was it in Ant-Man He's just so Oh my he's god a Goofball. He's so funny in Ant Man. Oh, I think man. Michael Pena is a tough one because you also, it's not even alphabets, like alphabets and then alpha numeric 
categories too. It's like character right. actors and co- and genre specific actors. But this is all to say. A versus B, you're in great hands with a B-level actor. Yeah. You that you're even if they're six out of ten, you're in great hands. And unless he, unless Colin's saying like B actor, as in like oh Aaron B movie, Roberts. yeah, yeah, which maybe is what he's meaning. Oh, you know? I just immediately went down to that alphabet. It's a good. Wait, what would yeah. you do? Are you are you? What would you do? <sighs> yeah, if they can fund the movie, you gotta you gotta do it. Yeah. You know, like and if it's like you said, six out of tens, that's not that's not that bad. That's pretty good. You know, and I, I would definitely, you know, take that nine out of 10 actor and put him in a different or her in a different role, you know, and, and move, just move them around. I mean, one of my answers was going to be like, oh, well, like if, if it, if you're really like, oh, nine out of 10, like it needs to be this unknown person in the lead role. Maybe you put the other named actor in a different role, but it sounds like from the question, like that's not, that's not the prompt. It's like they, they want only to be the lead role and they really are into it. And if it is truly a B-list actor, like we're talking about, you just hit the lottery. <laughs> like yeah. if a B-list actor wants to be in your movie, it's like, who cares? You know, cause like, that's like the William Defoe's and whatever, like people of the world. It's like, oh my God, like, of course. But if it's like an Eric Roberts type, I mean, Eric Roberts is a great actor. And, right. and if he literally was going to sell your movie, why not? You do you it too. Go for it. You do it. Yeah. Do whatever's going to make your movie. sell your movie. I guess go with Mickey Rourke, you know? Uh, it'll oh, be an experience. I love the wrestler. I will take <laughs> yeah. him. Even if he's yeah. crazy, I will take him. I, it goes back to what you and I were saying. Like, whatever you can do, yeah, figure out what your internal barometer is, what you're willing to compromise on. Like... I think if he, if Colin had said, this is, he said it was his first movie. He said it was labor of love. And then he said, he put those stipulations on of expecting revenue. And it's like in this marketplace, there are very few pathways and none of them are guaranteed. So those expectations are very unrealistic. Even though Colin, you have the best name in the world. It's, it's a diff. It's not an equation you can actually perform. Yeah. 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 I basically have come to, to think about it. If like, if you're going to, if you want to make money in as a director or a filmmaker, like you have to get hired to direct things. Yeah. Like you're not going to really make money putting your own production together. And like, you know, we, we had a, a look on, which hasn't come out yet, but like he talked about like this whole plan and I'm like, mm, I really hope that works, but um, <laughs> you know, it's going to be tough, man. It's going to be tough. I heard one investor was like, yeah, like, you know, get a hundred, get, what did he say? He was like, yeah, to get a hundred thousand sales on a movie, that shouldn't be a problem. Just use Facebook ads. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I'm not going to make a hundred thousand dollars selling a movie through a Facebook ads. Like, unless you have the best movie ever in the whole world that like played all these film festivals and, and the movie he was talking about did not do those things. So, <laughs> you know. Oh. I did get some good intel, though. Oh. We talked with, I won't name this distributor, but one of my films has an offer from a distribution company. And they said that you need to get 200 to 300 pre-sales in order to be in the top 10 of iTunes. Like they just oh. said to one, they had the numbers. But 100,000 transactional sales on a movie is so hard to get. Yeah. Like, or even $100,000 in return. Is like right. Like 200 to 300 sales is hard to get on transactional. So like right. 100,000 is that much harder. Yeah. And what is, what is $200? 200 sales turn like out to be that's like 600 800 dollars oh yeah 
<laughs> oh wait, no, wait, can't stop rentals. You're right, you're right. It's like ten dollars, so it's like it's two thousand like to three hundred, three thousand. Yeah, still, it's like that's just like if if your movie costs a couple hundred thousand dollars, it's like this is dropping drop the bucket. God, that's yeah, crazy. Should we read this iTunes review? We got an iTunes review. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, we have one. Uh, I'll 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 take it on because it's not bolded in the outline, so I will say it out loud. <laughs> Title is a must for indie filmmakers. Liz and Ulrich are both relatable and down to earth and extremely knowledgeable and passionate about what they do, which is a winning combination. Yes, making movies is hard, but week by week, Ulrich, Liz and their guests demonstrate that making movies is also rewarding, exciting and above all possible. And at the end of the day, especially because making movies is hard, this excellent pod is a great source of both comfort and inspiration. Five stars. I feel like I've heard this before. Is this just like someone very kindly is saying original independent thoughts and I've decided that someone else has said something similar or did, have we just read this one before? I don't think we've read this one before. This is brand new. Um, brand spanking new? It just came out. Yeah. And this was on November 2nd of 2022. My gosh. Well, who was it? It's from Banchi007. Banchi007. That was really nice of you. And I'm sorry to anyway imply that you were unoriginal. I just always, you know, anyone who listens to the podcast knows that I'm the negative Nancy. And I'm just like, this seems, I feel like we've heard this before. But thank you very much for saying your words. I'm just scrolling just to make sure that we don't already have a Banchi007 Banchi on here. I don't think so, but... Maybe somewhere. Anyways, well, thank you so much for the, for the very, very kind yeah. review. It means a lot to us. And then it's my turn to uh, take us out. If you want to ask us this question, comment, or suggestion, you could do so by uh, reaching out to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you want to be like Banchi007, you can go to iTunes and leave a review there. That would be fantastic. And finally, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Don't forget to check out Jambox.io. They're a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty great. Use our code MMIHpodcast for a 10% discount. Thanks so much to Mark Storoloff for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Tom, for just being awesome. Oh, and yeah, we should thank the Omni Hotel for their uh, support during the, the Austin Film Festival. We did one review interview from their podcasting room, which is pretty dope. And uh, yeah, we're hopefully we'll be doing more next year. So thank you so much, Omni, for all your support and your flexibility with our ever-changing schedule that we had to deal with. And yeah, that episode's not going to be out for a while because filmmakers want to wait until their film is released before they, they uh, set off you know the episode. But Abby uh, Horton and Ryan Dickey, they're the filmmakers behind Blow Up My Life. So if you're at film festivals, they're going to be at Kukuloris, which is happening Aww. very soon soon so go check out that movie if you ever see it anywhere uh, i haven't seen it yet but it looks freaking awesome and the story behind making it was was really cool but yeah thanks everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next week this week we welcome producer post supervisor film accountant all around indie film hero mark stoleroff on the show to talk about how he likes to work with with filmmakers what it takes to produce an indie feature i'm gonna say that all again because i forgot that i for it just it didn't work okay um <laughs>
Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.